What's up, everybody? Here we go. It is time for a brand new episode of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I am Andrew for America. And how you guys been? Uh, boy, what a time to be alive, people. <laughs> what a time to be alive here in the modern era or maybe the post modern era is more of an accurate term the new dark ages uh the dawn of one world etc so uh today i'm going to talk about a lot of stuff people uh there's a lot going on there's a lot of stuff that i've been trying to talk about for a very long time and I'm going to try to put it all together into this podcast. I might go over my time, and I might have to put some of it in another podcast. So this may or may not be another two-parter series. But um, we're going to see where it goes. So I, I want to start the show today just by talking about a few stories that I wanted to get into the episode. Um, last episode when I was talking about... Uh, Fauci and AIDS and COVID and how, um, you know, they're coming after people that are speaking out. Uh, apparently there's an MIT educated anti-vaxxer doctor who was treating her COVID-19 patients with ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine. She has... Uh, subsequently had her license suspended and must undergo psychiatric evaluation for, quote, spreading misinformation, unquote. I don't see her name here. Uh, hmm. But anyway, so that's just one more example uh, of people that are speaking out and doing what they're not supposed to be doing. Uh, the medical uh, tyrants are coming after you. And I really like this. Uh, this was a tweet by a guy named Dr. Eli David. He said, COVID is a deadly pandemic. It killed science, logic, evidence-based medicine, and common sense. <laughs> uh, yep. Love that. Uh, here's one from uh, Cernovich. The unvaccinated have the most skin in the game. If they are wrong, they die. So say what you will about their misguidedness, but you can't call them cowards. They are literally willing to bet their lives on their skepticism about the efficacy of these vaccines. They have real Skin in the game. Boy, I love that. So to all you pro-vaxxers out there, what's, what's your if, if your attitude is, oh, well, I hope you die if you don't get this vaccine because you deserve it because you're spreading it to other people, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that's what the unvaccinated are telling you people. They don't give a shit. They are so convinced that they are right that they're willing to give their lives if they contracted the COVID-19 virus. 
They think that they can beat it, and there are very good reasons for them to think and feel and believe that way. So if their decisions aren't affecting you, aside from your irrational belief that somebody who is unvaccinated can still spread the virus more so than someone that is vaccinated, I'm here to tell you, you're out of your fucking mind. You don't know what you're talking about. People that have been double, uh, you know, double jab, triple jab with the booster have contracted COVID-19. And apparently their viral loads are much larger. And they can spread it to anyone vaccinated or unvaccinated. Your arguments are falling apart. This tweet is from someone named Salome Sibonex. She says, it turns out the quote-unquote new normal wasn't about living with a new virus, but about living with a new level of government power. Boy, do I love that. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., uh, staunch op- uh, opposer of Anthony Fauci, and the Eco Health Alliance. He wrote a book. He's doing a book tour, uh, traveling around talking about it. You've probably seen it. Here's a tweet from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. recently said, Never before seen documents obtained by Project Veritas show military officials rejected dangerous gain-of-function experiments that Dr. Anthony Fauci later funneled through Eco Health Alliance to the Wuhan lab. So... There's a little bit more of the plot thickening with the Fauci funding the Wuhan lab in China story. And then here's my favorite part of the COVID-19 thing that I wanted to talk about last podcast. I'm just going to get this in now. Cannabis compounds allegedly prevent the virus that causes COVID-19 from penetrating human, I'm sorry, healthy human cells, according to a new lab study. (laughs) So if you smoke pot, people, and you haven't caught COVID yet, it's probably because being a pot smoker is helping you prevent the COVID-19 virus from being able to attach to your uh, healthy human cells. (laughs) So keep smoking weed, people. I love it. I just wanted to run those by you. I wanted to put those in the last podcast, and I forgot to do it. Um, And then, before I move on today, I wanted to read this quote from Eric Fromm. You guys know I love Eric Fromm, especially his book, The Sane Society. Here we go, Eric Fromm, quote, The organization man has lost the capacity to disobey. He is not even aware of the fact that he obeys. At this point in history, the capacity to doubt, to criticize, and to disobey may be all that stands between a future for mankind and the end of civilization as we know it. Eric Fromm. 
So I hope you guys find found those to be quite interesting. Got MIT educated anti-vaxxer doctors getting uh, getting their uh, licenses suspended, having to go psychiatric evaluation for not saying uh, what the big club's narrative is. Going off topic, getting silenced. Dr. Eli David said that the COVID uh, pandemic was definitely deadly. It killed science, logic, evidence-based medicine, and common sense. <laughs> and it's just amazing. It's amazing seeing and witnessing in this moment with my very eyes, our very eyes, our own eyes. We are all witnessing what Rahm Emanuel once said when he said, you never let a good crisis go to waste. In uh, the interview I just did with Sam Winchester, he says, you know, they keep instituting these crises to make us more malleable, to scare the shit out of us, to lie to us, to make us believe absurdities. And then we go out and commit atrocities to ourselves and to those around us. And now we're more primed and prepped to accept new th- new realities into our life that previously, before the crisis, never would have accepted. The same thing happened with the Kitty Worthman story, small usurpations over time, when the Nazis annexed uh, Austria. In the Lessons of History episode I talked to you guys about, same thing with Yuri Bezmenov and the Social Communist Subversion Plan, destabilization, crisis normalization, whatever the other step was. I hope you guys are able to see. I hope my podcast is helping you people take all these stories and put it all together. And I hope a picture is forming for you. And I really hope we all have the courage and the intellectual curiosity to continue to press on and learn and grow and achieve goals, and make the best decisions for ourselves and for our families. Because everything that the big club is telling you through their media is bullshit. If you pay attention to the narratives, and you believe them as if they were the word of God Almighty, him or herself, you are a stupid, naive, gullible, numbskull, idiot, moron, buffoon. Dipshit. I continue to talk about on this podcast. Let's move on. So another thing I wanted to talk about today, (laughs) I'm sure sure you guys have all heard that Neil Young threatened uh, to take his music off of Spotify if they didn't uh, get rid of Rogan or censor Rogan, right? And I thought that he was just being, uh, you know, an old boomer hypocrite, uh, I guess, given, you know, he wrote the song Rockin' in the Free World. (laughs) keep on rocking in the free world huh neil young but listen to this so i saw i came across this meme and i poked around a little bit turns out there's a little bit of truth to this so check this shit out see coincidences people i don't believe them anymore A, a coincidence in my opinion in this day and age is too good to be true and if you follow the money do a little digging connect the dots a little bit, you might stumble upon the story behind the story. So apparently, 
uh, August 4th, 2020, a company called Blackstone announced the appointment of a gentleman by the name of Jeffrey B. Kindler, who was the former chairman and CEO of Pfizer. And he became the new senior advisor at Blackstone. Okay? I don't know what Blackstone does exactly. Some big company, I would imagine. And then, January 6, 2021, Neil Young, apparently, there's a news story that says he sells 50% of his entire song catalog rights to a company called Hypnosis. And it's spelled H-I-P-G-N-O-S-O-S. Publishing House makes third major deal in a week following acquisition of catalogs uh, by Jimmy uh, Iovine and Fleetwood Mac's Lindsey Buckingham. So apparently this company is buying up old musician stuff, okay? Now, October 12th, 2021, that company Blackstone, whose new senior advisor was the former chairman and CEO of Pfizer... Apparently, Blackstone and Hypnosis Song Management launched a $1 billion partnership to invest in songs, recorded music, music IPs, and uh, royalties. Okay, so the old Pfizer CEO became the senior advisor for Blackstone. Blackstone started buying up all these old artists' rights to their music. I don't know why. Probably they're going to sell them and they're going to maybe start their own streaming service. Who knows what they're doing? Who knows, right? And then the last part of this puzzle, uh, 25th of either January or February this year, 2022, Neil Young demands Spotify remove his music over Joe Rogan vaccine misinformation. (laughs) So this meme is alleging that these old artists are trying to probably get off of Spotify and they're trying to demonize Spotify because Spotify is about to be their new market competition. People! Oh my God, this shit just keeps getting better and better and better. And speaking of Mr. Neil Young... Get a load of this shit. Apparently, uh, back in 1985, Rolling Stone magazine claimed that Neil Young tried blaming the homosexuals for AIDS. In an interview with Melody Maker 1985, Neil Young backed Ronald Reagan's gun control policies and said of AIDS, the AIDS virus, quote, you go to a supermarket and you see a uh, uh, slang term for a gay person that starts with an F behind the fucking cash register and you don't want him to be handling your potatoes, unquote. I'll say that again. Allegedly in 1985, in an interview with Melody Maker, Neil Young, who was backing Ronald Reagan's gun control policies, said about people with the AIDS virus, if you go to the supermarket and you see a gay person behind the fucking cash register, you don't want him 
to handle your potatoes. <laughs> Neil Young, boy, keep on rocking in the free world, huh, buddy? <laughs> I can't wait. So I can't wait to see it. So the next story in that chronology is going to be uh, Blackstone launches new streaming su- service called Hypnosis. H-I-P-G-N-O-S-I-S. And I bet you they're going to be competing with streaming services much like Spotify. (laughs) I rest my case, people. I keep finding the stuff. I'm telling you, you got to look behind the curtain. You got to read between the lines. You got to pull back the veil. Peel back that onion. And you will be shocked and sometimes appalled at what you may find. <laughs> Let's move on. So what I want to move into talking about now uh, is a little scary. It's a little concerning. I had the courage to peel back this onion a little bit. And uh, it's a quite concerning story. I'm going to kind of jump around and talk about this concept um there's this thing people called the deagle forecast um i heard about the deagle forecast on a podcast and i didn't really understand what it was but i wrote it down and jotted it down i was like you know what i need to go look this up and see what this is uh and i have done so so i'm gonna begin talking to you people telling you some varying stories about this thing called the Deagle Forecast, okay? So, apparently, Deagle.com, D-E-A-G-E-L, the Deagle Forecast, Deagle.com, is a website owned by a gentleman named Edwin Deagle. Uh, And according to whois.net, it says it references government and military web sources to make projections of things like GDP, population, and the like for various countries throughout the world, although it doesn't show the formulas. So apparently... This is some, you can go look it up. Go to Deagle.com and you can see what I'm talking about. They talk about uh, government military weaponry, uh, engines, parts for new um, uh, weapons and machines and stuff that are coming out. They have all these charts that uh, talk about GDP per country, etc., etc., etc. And one of the things that the Deagle forecast talks about is population. And... There was a change to the population formula, allegedly, uh, a few years back. And it said, after the fact, that the U.S. population will either be reduced to uh, a number equal to or less than 69 million, or will be reduced by 69 million people by the year 2025. Very concerning stuff, right? So I dug a little bit further to see what exactly uh, this is. And I came across this. This is from Lisa Haven News Network. I don't know who she is. I don't know if it's reputable. 
She has a few, few videos about this where she talks about MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, predicts dramatic death drop in the year 2020 uh, through 2025. Is it the end of the world? Who knows? Let's take a listen to this. Hi everyone, Lisa Haven here, and what I have to share with you today will literally send chills down your spine. Now for the last couple of years, I've brought up an organization known as Daigle. Now Daigle does certain contract work for the government, it works for various departments. It is not a government agency, but they do do some work for various departments. That said, this particular group, as many of you know, have predicted a mass drop in population here in America and also globally. But now it's not just Daigle anymore. An MIT computer is now predicting something similar and it's downright terrifying. And I can't help but ask the question, is someone trying to tell us something? What I want to do is take you straight to the Daigle site for those who have not seen it so you can see it for yourself. Now on the screen you can see Daigle predicts that in 2017 our population here in America is about 327 million. You can also see their further prediction in 2025 that the population will only be around a hundred million person. So we're missing about 227 million people by the time 2025 hits. Now, what's the reason that Daigle gives for this decline? They say a possible pandemic. However, they're not labeling that specifically as the case for America, but they list Ebola as a possibility. But then they also go on to say about U.S. specifically that the collapse of the Western financial system will wipe out the standard of living of its population while ending Ponzi schemes such as the stock exchange and pension funds. The population will be hit so badly by a full array of bubbles and Ponzi schemes that the migration engine will start to work in reverse, accelerating itself due to ripple effects, thus leading to the demise of the United States of America. <sighs> Not my words, but those are the words of Daigle saying we could have some kind of uh, economics collapse and migration to the states could cause more trouble and chaos and millions of people will die. Interesting to say the least. But now uh, to add one more piece to the pie, uh, we have MIT making a bombshell report. Check it out. Now this is on Michael Schneider's The Economic Collapse blog and it's titled MIT Computer Model Predicts Dramatic Drop in quality of life around 2020 and the end of civilization around 2040. It goes on to say that the name of the computer program is World One and it was originally created by Jay Forrester. The prediction came from a program nicknamed World One, which was developed by a team of MIT researchers and processed by Australia's largest computer. It was originally devised by computer pioneer Jay Forrester after he was tasked by the Club of Rome. By the way, that's a David Rockefeller-founded organization, completely globalist group, to develop a model of global sustainability. However, the shocking results of the computer calculations showed that the level of pollution and population would cause a global collapse by 2040. Daigle says 2025, the other says 2040, but it goes on, according to the model, life as we know it is about to change in a massive way. 
At this time, the broadcasters address the audience. At around 2020, the condition of the planet becomes highly critical. If we do nothing about it, the quality of life goes down to zero. Pollution becomes so serious, it will start to kill people, which in turn will cause the population to diminish lower than it was in the 1900s. In the 1900s, by the way, it was 1.6 billion people. Today, we have about 7.6 billion people on the planet. So they're talking about a 6 billion person decline globally by 2020. At this stage, around 2040 to 2050, civilized life as we know it on the planet will cease to exist. Now, Michael Snyder, the author, goes on to ask the question, Maybe this is a glimpse into the kind of future the globalists believe is coming in the future. Interesting. Here we have a model predicting a massive decline in population due to a population bomb and a supposedly pollution by 2020. Uh, now, I don't see the world going down that much by 2020. In fact, I don't predict that at all. That's my personal take. I don't think we're going to be this massive decline. And I honestly don't think that Daigle is going to have this massive decline by 2025 unless the globalists get their way. This could be the ultimate plan. Or maybe it's a scare tactic by the globalists to get everybody to think that the population is going to go down and so changes are made or certain things are done as far as the conception of global warming fraud is concerned. Maybe this is the way to push rules and regulations that they want. Or maybe it really is something they have up their sleeve. Or maybe we really will see a population decline by those years. In the end, I have no idea. I live in 2018 and all I know is what's happening now. But as a reporter, I want to share with you what I see. That some of the things that uh, predictions that are being made by these various groups and why even make them? Why have such a huge prediction in such a little amount of time? We're talking not many years from now. Okay, so people, she made this video. Lisa Haven, the Lisa Haven News Network. She made this video in 2018, people, before COVID. I will repeat that. She made this video that I just played for you in 2018. Okay? So that's a little bit about that. I guess it's Daigle. I don't know if it's Deagle or Daigle or whatever. But I wanted to read this to you guys too. The Daigle makes mysterious changes to the 2025 population forecast for America as Bill Gates launches what he called the Grand Challenge, the Holy Grail of Influenza Research and Bridging the Valley of Death. This is from the All News Pipeline by a guy named Stefan Stanford. While Microsoft founder and vaccine propagandist Bill Gates recently warned that the next deadly flu epidemic is just waiting around the corner, and it could quickly lead to the deaths of more than 30 million people. We're not the least bit surprised that he also claims a universal flu shot is the answer to prevent such a deadly pandemic. This despite the fact that even medical experts claim that this year's flu shot was hardly a prevent, uh, hardly a preventive and actually led to the spread of the flu. Hmm. While Bill, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation teamed up with Google co-founder Larry Page to launch the grand challenge of what they call the Holy Grail of Influenza Research, 
and attempt to develop a universal vaccine. A universal vaccine. Who's that remind you of? Remember when I was talking to you guys about Rudolf Steiner? In the future, there will be a universal vaccine that will extinguish uh, the ability for humans to uh, know anything or experience spiritual life. One step closer to robots. One step closer to man merging with machine. Gates and Page are giving out individual grants of between $250,000 and $2 million over two years period of time to those attempting to develop such a universal flu shot with human testing set to begin by 2021. Calling upon computational biology, bioinformatics, and artificial intelligence. That's the sk- the models they always talk about. Oh, our modeling is showing this, that, and the other. That's what that means. Uh, machine learning and other new technologies are going to be used as aids in the ongoing research. Gates and Page hope to bridge the funding of such projects due to what they call the valley of death between novel concepts and clinical trial-ready-made products. And uh, while, like many globalists, Gates and Page sound sincere in their goals to prevent the spread of an epidemic that could cull tens of millions of lives, we must always remember that Gates and the Gates Foundation are also proponents of eugenics. And I haven't even got into eugenics and Bill Gates. Uh, Maybe I will in the future. Bill Gates himself... uh, Uh, came out directly and stated the world is far too overpopulated as heard directly from him on the second video below while his father William H. Gates Sr. was a former board member of Planned Parenthood. And I've said, I've alluded to in a previous podcast that Planned Parenthood was basically a eugenics program instituted to get rid of basically black and brown lives in this country. And since that, since the publishing of this article, Bill Gates has doubled down on his goal to depopulate the planet using deceitful Orwellian doublespeak in a new video to bamboozle his naive followers into believing that by making people healthier, we can reduce the world's population. <laughs> See the uh, inversion there? The opposite, the flipping of logical, reasonable, rational ideas. How are you going to reduce the world's population by making people healthier? Hmm. Make no mistake about it. When Gates talks about making people healthier, what he is really talking about is enforcing the mandatory rollout of his range of experimental vaccinations. The same vaccines that have already caused mass sterilization and death in multiple continents. And if you want some proof about that, go to the NIH website and look at the results from the uh, test runs of uh, mass vaccination they did in the country of India that made a bunch of Indian women sterile, infertile, and unable to have children. Okay? The second richest man on the planet is a committed globalist and eugenicist working towards a New World Order goal of depopulation. Uh, lest anyone forget these facts, Bill Gates regularly goes out of his way to remind us of them. And you can see that on any time he gives a speech, much like the TED Talk he gave. 
Uh, Bill Gates and his foundation have consistently come under fire for their goal of depopulation, and now the same man who admitted in a TED talk, I just talk, I just alluded to that, played for you in a previous podcast, that his goal is to reduce carbon and eliminate a billion humans from the face of the earth, has now taken to Facebook to lecture us about the why being eradicated is in our own best interests. <laughs> Dr. Jonathan Quick, chair of the Global Health Council, said the flu virus is the most diabolical, hardest to control, and fastest spreading potential viral killer known to humankind. That was until they cooked up COVID-19. And while the website Daigle.com has recently made some very mysterious changes to the 2025 forecast for America, as we report in much more detail below... You can go to this website and look at it from the trenchesworldreport.com. Deagle makes mysterious changes to 2025 population forecast. Uh, we, as we hear in the final video below from the Leak Project and read on this March story from the Sun, one medical health expert is warning of a mutant virus that sounds straight from a science fiction novel or a science fiction movie, potentially becoming the fastest spreading viral killer known to the human race. And as he tells us, such a killer virus outbreak could happen tomorrow. And I think what he's talking about is COVID-19. And what scares me most about this is remember when Rand Paul was grilling Fauci on the Santa floor and he said, I want you to admit that gain-of-function research is dangerous, not because of COVID, but because of what they were studying in that lab. The viruses they were studying people were 15 to 50 percent, uh, had, had a 15 to 50 percent more of a death kill rate, uh, approximately, than COVID-19. At what point does this stuff stop becoming conspiracy theory? At what point do you people finally just admit and accept the fact that a small group of very rich, wealthy world planners are trying to depopulate this fucking planet, people? I'm not making this shit up. And then I kind of like this part too. I want to read this to you. This is quite interesting. We'd love to know why the Daigle forecast is forecasting the population of the United States to drop from 327 million in 2017 to only 100 million by 2025. That's four years from now, people. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. Three years from now. With them also forecasting a 2025 U.S. military budget of $32 billion dollars. Down from our 2017 military budget of $637 billion. That's just over $600 billion less funding. While simultaneously forecasting our population density to drop from 34 inhabitants per square mile to only 10 inhabitants per square mile by the year 2025. And they go on to say that they've continued to email Daigle without any uh, returned 
messages back. Also forecasting that our gross domestic product will drop from 19 trillion 2017 to only 2.4 trillion in 2025. Daigle's numbers for America in 2025 still show an America in total collapse, a third world nation with our GDP per capita more than cut in half while our purchase power parity PPP is forecast to be lower than Thailand, Colombia, Bulgaria, Croatia, and Montenegro. And before you go and discount Daigle's numbers, it's very important to know that our sources are the deep state. With the CIA, the U.S. Department of Defense, Department of State, World Bank contributing data for their forecasts. So what does Daigle know? What, uh, what does Daigle know that we don't know? Clearly, they have a plan, people. The collapse of the Western financial system will wipe out the standard of living of its population while ending Ponzi schemes such as the stock exchange and the pension funds. The population will be hit so badly by a full array of bubbles and Ponzi schemes that the migration engine will start to work in reverse, accelerating itself due to the ripple effects, thus leading to the demise of the United States of America. This unseen situation for the states will develop itself in a cascading pattern with unprecedented and devastating effects for the economy. Jobs offshoring will surely end with many American corporations relocating overseas, thus becoming foreign corporations. So, how does that make you feel? The American standard of living is was once one of the highest... Uh, far more than double of the Soviets while having a services economy that would be gone with the financial system while pensioners see their retirement disappear in front of their eyes and there are no servicing jobs. You can imagine what is going to happen next. At least younger people can migrate. Never in human history were so many elders among the population. In the past centuries, people were lucky to get to their 30s and 40s. The American downfall is set to be far worse than the Soviet Union's. A confluence of crisis with a devastating result. So that's pretty terrifying, wouldn't you say? Not so promising, right? Oh boy. And if you go to the Daigle.com page, people, here, let me just read some of the stories that they talk about on here. Spanish Army takes delivery of its first upgraded CH-47 Chinook helicopter. U.S. Navy takes delivery of first production MQ-4C Triton unmanned aircraft system to be upgraded to to I'm sorry to multi-intelligence configuration. So that's a drone, an unmanned aircraft, cooking up uh, drone warfare machines. Yep. Diamond Aircraft Select Pratt & Whitney Canada uh, engine to power the Dart 750 training aircraft. Uh, Cotter Airway places order for up to 50 Boeing 777 freighters. North Korea test fires Mach 16 capable hypersonic missile. U.S. Navy orders 9 low-rate initial production lot 6 CH-53 Kilo King Stallion helicopters, etc., etc., etc. They talk about China. Looking uh, to buy some navigation satellites. Philippines is ordering defense missile systems. Germany is taking delivery of its fourth F-125 class frigate. People. 
U.S. Air Force Awards contract awards contract for an electronic warfare engineering support system. U.S. Army orders 155 millimeter Excalibur one Bravo projectiles through 2024 from Raytheon. Go look it up. Australia to develop hypersonic weapons capability. Daigle.com. D-E-A-G-E-L.com. Okay? I'm going to move on. Actually, I'm going to take a break. And when I come back, we're going to get into the Bank of International Settlements that I told you good fine people in a previous podcast that I was going to talk about eventually. And then after that, we're going to ask and answer the question, what the fuck is a Bilderberger? When we get back. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Alright everybody, welcome back. So, in a previous podcast, I briefly touched on an interaction I had with a gentleman at a bar one day. Uh, I overheard a guy talking about cryptocurrency and the stock market, and he said that he was a stock guy, and... Uh, you know, I heard, I overheard him talking to another gentleman about various topics. And then this guy says, so, uh, have you ever been to Finland to this guy, to the dude he was talking to? And the guy's like, no. And he he says, oh God, you got to go to Finland. Uh, there's so few people per square mile there. Uh, if you have money, you can live like a king up there and, uh, blah, blah, blah. And then, on top of that, he said, uh, I was thinking about moving my family there because I don't know what's going to happen soon here in the States. And he said that, I don't know if I can really speculate about the future of currency and currency trading and stocks and crypto and all that kind of stuff because he found out that there was this thing called the Bank of International Settlements. And seemed like a very educated Normal guy, not some tinfoil hat wearing, nut job conspiracy theorist, just a normal guy, that finance dude, stock guy, that knew his, his money, he knew his shit, right? <clears throat> and then, you know, he was talking about this Bank of International Settlements, and I didn't really know uh, what that meant, but it uh, Sounded like something uh, that needed to be looked into. Uh, he alluded to it being this thing that some unsanctioned, non-governmental group uh, was in control of. And, you know, he didn't know if they could be, if there could be uh, effective speculation on markets, given that this entity existed and they can come in and pretty much... Uh, prop up or topple entire economies if they wanted to, okay? So that's just a brief 
uh, insight to where I heard this. This wasn't on some conspiracy page or anything like that. I, I literally overheard a guy at a bar talking about this one day, okay? So here we go, people. Let's learn together. What's the Bank of International Settlements? The Bank for International Settlements is an international financial institution owned by central banks that fosters international monetary and financial cooperation and serves as a bank for central banks. So it's a bank for central banks. So if you thought your Rothschild banking cartel and your JP Morgan and every other centralized bank around this world was the top of the finance pyramid, <laughs> guess what, people? All of the central banks that exist in this world have a bank above them. It's a bank for central banks. <laughs> the Bank for International Settlements carries out its work through its meetings, programs, and through the Basel process, hosting international groups pursuing global financial stability and facilitating their interactions. It also provides banking services, but only to central banks and other international organizations. It is called the Basel Process because it is based in Basel, Switzerland, with representatives, uh, I'm sorry, with representative offices in Hong Kong and Mexico City. Okay? So we're talking about a bank for central banks. So you want to talk about the World Bank and the IMF? That's what we're talking about. We're talking about some group has more money than all the central banks in this world. Did you know that? <laughs> I didn't know that. The Bank for International Settlements was established in 1930 by an intergovernmental agreement between Germany, Belgium, France, the United Kingdom, Italy, Japan, the United States, and Switzerland. It opened its doors in Basel, Switzerland on May 17, 1930. It was originally intended to facilitate reparations imposed on Germany by the Treaty of Versailles after World War I. And if you've been listening to my podcast, The Past is Crazy episodes, I kind of touch on Germany and World War I a little bit. So it was intended to facilitate reparations imposed by, on Germany by the Treaty of Versailles after World War I and to act as the trustee for the German government international loan that was floated in 1930. The need to establish a dedicated institution for this purpose was suggested in 1929 by the Young Committee. Go look up the Young Committee. And was agreed to in August of that year at the conference at The Hague. Uh, the charter for the bank was drafted at the International Bankers Conference at Baden-Baden in November and adopted at the Second Hague Conference January 20th, 1930. According to the charter, shares in the bank could be held by individuals and non-governmental entities. Let me repeat that. 
according to the charter, shares in this bank could be held by individuals and non-governmental entities. However, the rights of voting and representation at the bank's general meeting were to be exercised exclusively by the central banks of the countries in which shares had been issued. By agreement with Switzerland, the Bank for International Settlements had its corporate existence and headquarters there. It also enjoyed certain immunities in the contracting states. See also Brussels Protocol, 1936. So remember when I said Davos, Switzerland, lots of stuff going on there? Guess what? There used to be a lot of stuff going on in Basel, Switzerland back in the day also. Lots of big club shit going on in neutral (laughs) Switzerland. Good place to have some uh, meetings where, you know, no one's going to go declare war on a neutral country, allegedly, right? And apparently, all the citizens of Switzerland, brief aside, are encouraged to be responsible firearms owners. So, there's another rabbit hole you guys can go down. The Bank of International Settlement's original task of facilitating World War I reparation payments quickly became obsolete. Reparation payments were first suspended by the Hoover Moratorium, June of 1931, and then abolished altogether in the Lausanne Agreement of July 1932. Instead, the, I'm going to call it Bank of International Settlements, the BIS, henceforth. The BIS focused on its second statutory task, fostering the cooperation between its member central banks. It acted as a meeting forum for central banks and provided banking facilities to them. For instance, in the late 1930s, the BIS was instrumental in helping continental European central banks shipping out part of their gold reserves to London. Hmm. As a purportedly apolitical organization, the BIS was unable to prevent transactions that reflected contemporaneous geopolitical realities, but were also widely regarded as unconscionable. (laughs) Oh, people! As a result of the policy of appeasement of Nazi Germany by the UK and France in March 1939, the BIS was obliged to transfer 23 tons of gold it held on behalf of Czechoslovakia to the German Reichsbank following the German annexation of Czechoslovakia. Remember when I talked about Kitty Werthmann again? Germany annexing Austria back in the day? You ever heard the story, there's no gold in Fort Knox? My theory is that this is the reason behind all that shit, people. At the outbreak of World War II, September 1939, the BIS Board of Directors, on which the main European central banks were represented, decided that the bank should remain open, but that for the duration of the hostilities, 
no meetings of the board of directors were to take place and the bank should maintain a neutral stance in the conduct of its business. <laughs> However, as the war dragged on, evidence mounted that the BIS conducted operations that were helpful to the Germans. Also throughout the war, the Allies accused the Nazis of looting and pleaded with the BIS not to accept gold from the Reichsbank in payment for pre-war obligations linked to the Young Plan. Go look up the Young Plan. I'm not going to get into it. But continue listening, people. This is about to get really good. This was to no avail as remelted gold was either confiscated from prisoners or seized in victory and thus acceptable as payment to the BIS. Operations conducted by the BIS were viewed with increasing suspicion from London and Washington. The fact that top-level German industrialists and advisors set on the BIS board seemed to provide ample evidence of how the BIS might be used by Hitler throughout the war with the help of American, British, and French banks. Between 1933 and 1945, the BIS Board of Directors included Walter Funk, a prominent Nazi official, and Emil Pohl, responsible for processing dental gold looted from concentration camp victims, as well as Hermann Schmitz, the director of IG Farben, and Baron von Schroeder, the owner of the J.H. Stein Bank, all of whom were later convicted of war crimes or crimes against humanity. In 1944, Bretton Woods Conference recommended the liquidation of the Bank of International Settlements at the earliest possible moment. This resulted in the BIS being the subject of a disagreement between the United States and British delegations. The liquidation of the bank was supported by other European delegates as well as Americans including Harry Dexter White and Secretary of the Treasury Henry Morgenthau Jr. And I told you in a previous podcast, go look up the Morgenthau plan. Abolition was opposed by John Maynard Keynes, <laughs> head of the British delegation. So for all of you Keynesian economists out there, I find your philosophy on economics to be suspect, questionable, perhaps bullshit. Keynes went to Morgenthau hoping to prevent or postpone the dissolution, but the next day it was approved. The liquidation of the bank was never actually undertaken. In April 1945, the new U.S. President Harry S. Truman ended U.S. involvement in the scheme. The British government suspended the dissolution and the decision to liquidate the BIS was officially reversed in 1948. After World War II, the BIS retained a distinct European focus. It acted as agent for the European Payments Union, 
1950-58, an intra-European clearing arrangement designed to help the European countries in restoring currency convertibility and free multilateral trade. During the 1960s, the heyday of the Bretton Woods fixed exchange rate system, the BIS once again became the locus for transatlantic monetary cooperation. It coordinated the central bank's gold pool and a number of currency support operations, uh, e.g. Sterling Group Arrangements, uh, 66 to 68, and the Group of 10, the G10, including the main European economies. Canada, Japan, United States became the most prominent grouping. Canada, Japan, and the United States. That will eventually become something known as the Trilateral Commission. Perhaps, I believe. I don't know if Canada is part of it. I think it was Canada. I'm sorry. I think it was the United States, Japan, and another country. can't remember who it was. But anyway. Let's move on. With the end of the Bretton Woods system, 1971 to 73, and the return of floating exchange rates, financial instability came back to the forefront. The collapse of some internationally active banks, such as Herstat Bank, 1974, highlighted the need for improving banking supervision at the international level. The G10 governors created the Basel Committee on Banking Supervision, the BCBS, which remains active today. The BIS developed into a global meeting place for regulators and for developing international standards. The Basel Concordant, the Basel Capital Accord, and the Basel One and I'm sorry, the Basel Two and Three uh, meetings. Uh, were what came out of this global meeting place. Through its member central banks, the BIS was actively involved in the resolution of the Latin American debt crisis in 1982. Hmm. Latin America, 1982. Interesting chronology. You guys remember what was happening in Latin America in 1982-1982. From 1964 until 1993, the BIS provided the Secretariat for the Committee of Governors of the Central Banks of the Member States of the, <laughs> Member States of the European Community, Community of, the Committee of Governors. This committee had been created by the European Council decision to improve monetary cooperation among the EC Central Banks. Likewise, the BIS in 89 uh, 1988 to 89, hosted most of the meetings of the Delors Committee, the Committee for the Study of Economic and Monetary Union, which produced a blueprint for monetary unification, subsequently adopted in the Maastricht Treaty of 1992. Go look up the Maastricht Treaty. M-A-A-S-T-R-I-C-H-T. In 1993, when the Committee of Governors was replaced by the European Monetary Institute, the EMI, it moved from Basel to, guess where? Frankfurt, Germany, cutting, tie, cutting its ties with the Bank of International Settlements. You guys remember who I told you was raised... 
in Frankfurt, Germany. Mayor Amschel Rothschild. In the 1900s to the early 2000s, the BIS successfully globalized, breaking out of its traditional European core. This was reflected in a gradual increase in its membership from 33 shareholding central bank members in 1995 to 60 members in 2013, which together represent roughly 95% of global GDP. Oh boy. And also in the much more global uh, composition of the BIS Board of Directors, in 1998, the BIS opened a representative office for Asia and the Pacific in the Hong Kong uh, SAR, whatever that means. Uh, A BIS representative office for the Americas was established in 2002 in Mexico. Okay, so there's one in Hong Kong, there's one in Mexico City, I believe. The BIS was originally owned by both central banks and private individuals, since the United States, Belgium, and France had decided to sell all or some of the shares allocated to their central banks to private investors. And I'm going to say that probably happened somewhat recently. In our country's history, the BIS shares traded on stock markets, which made the bank an unusual organization, an international organization in the technical sense of public international law, yet allowed for private shareholders. Many central banks had similarly started as such private institutions. For example, the Bank of England (laughs) was privately owned until 1946, and we know about that, don't we? In more recent years, the BIS was bought back, uh, has bought back its once publicly traded shares. It is now wholly owned by BIS members, central banks, but still operates in the private market as a counterparty asset manager and lender for central banks and international financial institutions. Profits from its transactions are used, among other things, to fund the bank's other international activities. And uh, this goes on to talk about how the 60 member banks of this new organization went on uh, to be involved in the creation of the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. People, if I've said it once, I've said it a million times. Carol Quigley in the book Tragedy Tragedy and Hope was right. There is a small group of internationalist, wealthy, banking, cartel, family, world, planner, financiers that are above the law, that fund both sides of every outcome so that they can control the outcome of that conflict. And their goal is to control 
the world. Let's move on. And uh, real quick before we move on, you guys can go check it out. Go to the website, www.bis.org. And you can read all about what the Bank for International Settlements is doing and involved with here in the modern era. Here in the year 2022. Now I'm going to move on and I'm going to talk about something that I have heard and I'm sure you people have heard and I know I've talked about on the show quite a bit. And I don't know who are involved in it or what its history is or what the point is. Have you guys ever heard of the Bilderberg Group? What the fuck is a Bilderberger, right? Well, turns out it's another one of these big groups. So you got the big club that I always talk about. And within the big club, which is really a very small group of people uh, when compared to the population of the world. But within the big club, the big club is just my general term for all of these Khazarian, Rothschild, Roman Catholic Church, Freemason, blah, blah, yada, yada, etc., etc., world planners. There's a hundred, you know, the Club of Rome, the Club, the Council of Five Hundred. You've heard these terms, I'm sure, in your conspiracy theory circles, right? <laughs> conspiracy theory, God, I love that term. Such a, it's so funny how pitiful the human mind is. You just, oh, anything that you listen to that you don't think's based in fact, oh, you're just a conspiracy theorist. Cause I'm scared. I don't want to do any investigation and really learn. <laughs> you're so controlled and manipulated even with language people you are controlled and manip manipulated with words and you don't even know it some of you anyway um anyway the Bilderberg group what the fuck is a Bilderberger Alex Jones has talked about it Many, many conspiracy theorists have talked about it. Ooh, conspiracy theorists, right? Let's learn together. The Bilderberg Group is a meeting, an annual conference established in 1954 to foster dialogue between Europe and North America. The group's agenda originally to prevent another world war. <laughs> There's that opposites again. There's that inversion. The agenda is was originally to prevent world war. <laughs> They've been causing every world war since the dawn of time, people. Wow. You are so controlled and manipulated with words. In language, it's gross. Uh, but now the Builder Group, uh, the Bilderberg Meeting Group, is now defined as bolstering a consensus around free market Western capitalism and its interests around the globe. And what that means is what I told you guys about China. When China, I said China uh, is a communist country, but they've outsourced wealth creation and they've. Uh, they're off and running with that 
That's for sure. And I made the argument in a previous podcast that capitalism is being used uh, by this small group of people, this cabal, whatever, to pretty much, you know, what's that term they always say? You privatize the gains and you you socialize the externalities. Yeah. And that's where capitalism gets its main criticism from uh, the left. And my problem with that entire argument is that they're criticizing the wrong thing. Capitalism is your friend, like I always say, but crony capitalism is your enemy. Most of you lefties, when you talk shit about capitalism, you don't even know it, but you're talking about crony capitalism. You're not talking about peer capitalism, and it's a shame that you fucking people don't know that. I recommend you learn that. And start putting the blame on government rather than capitalism. Okay, let's move on. Participants in the Bilderberg Group include political leaders, experts from industry and finance, academia, and the media. Numbering between 120 and 150 members. Attendees are entitled to use information gained at the meetings, but not to attribute it to a named speaker or to the meeting itself. Gee, I wonder why. Because it's a big club, my fellow Americans, and you and I are not in the big club. This is to encourage candid debate while maintaining privacy, a provision that has fed conspiracy theories from both the left and the right. Okay? Conspiracy theories from both the left and the right. So for you lefties out there that are sucking the dick of big pharma and big government right now, you probably want to, you know, learn (laughs) some of the realities of this world. Okay. Uh, the Bilderberg meetings were uh, were chaired by Prince Bernard of the Netherlands up until 1976. The current chairman is Henry de Castries, and I don't know who that is. Go look it up. The first conference was held at the Bilderberg Hotel, Oosterbeek, Netherlands, uh, from 1929. I'm sorry, from 29. Uh, May to 31 May of 1954. 64, sorry, 64. The hotel gave its name both uh, to the group and to the Bilderbergers who participate in its activities. The hotel is situated in a quiet location, approximately 7 kilometers west of the city of Arnhern. It is owned and operated by the Bilderberg Hotel chain, which runs 12 hotels and an event location in the Netherlands and one hotel in Germany. At the time of the 1954, maybe it was 54 conference, it was a medium-sized family-run hotel. (laughs) Wonder how big it is now. The conference was initiated by several people, including Polish politician in exile Josef Redinger, who, concerned about the growth of anti-Americanism in Western Europe, proposed an international conference at which leaders from European countries and the United States would be brought together with the aim of promoting Atlanticism. Better understanding between the cultures of the United States and Western Europe to foster cooperation on political, economic, and defense issues. 
Redinger approached Prince Bernard of the Netherlands, who agreed to promote the idea, together with former Belgian Prime Minister Paul Van Zeeland and the, the then head of Unilever, the company, Unilever, Paul Rikens. Bernard, in turn, contacted Walter Bedell Smith, uh, the then head of the CIA, who asked Eisenhower advisor Charles Douglas Jackson to deal with the suggestion. You wonder where Eisenhower got uh, the balls to give his farewell speech from. Turns out the Bilderbergers and the CIA, under the direction of Charles Douglas Jackson, were the catalyst. And then you guys know the Eisenhower speech. Maybe I'll play it at the end of this episode. Me and Sam Winchester talked about it in our interview with each other. Sam's played it on his show before. If you haven't listened to Eisenhower's farewell speech, but you've you've listened to my JFK JFK's farewell speech before they popped him, I highly recommend you go do that. In fact, yeah, just finish listening to this podcast. I'll outro this show today with that Eisenhower speech for those of you that have never heard it, okay? So, let's, uh, yeah, so uh, Bernard in turn contacted Walter Bedell Smith, uh, the then head of the CIA, who asked Eisenhower advisor Charles Douglas Jackson to deal with the suggestion. Uh, the guest list was to be drawn up by inviting two attendees from each nation, one of each to represent conservative and liberal points of view. Fifty delegates from 11 countries in Western Europe attended the first conference along with 11 Americans. 1954, this began happening. Pay attention to the chronology here, people. The success of the meeting led the organizers to arrange an annual conference. A permanent steering committee was established uh, with Redinger, appointed as permanent secretary, as well as, as well as organizing the conference. The steering committee also maintained a register of attending names and contact details with the aim of creating an informal network of individuals who could call upon one another in a private capacity. That's a, f that's a pretty way of saying colluding and conspiring. Conferences were held in France, Germany, and Denmark over the following three years. In 1957, the first U.S. conference was held at St. Simmons Island, Georgia, with $30,000 from the Ford Foundation. Hmm, the Ford Foundation. The foundation also supplied funding for the 1959 and 63 conferences. Okay, so people, this is where the big club uh, Bank for International Settlements group. Uh, they promulgate their messaging down, and the Bilderberg group is a group of uh, old world and new world wealthy business uh, and banking people that get together and continue talking about those same messages. What are we going to do with the money supply? What are we going to do with governments? Are we trying to further a plan for the world, perhaps? 
The participants are between 120 and 150 uh, people, including political leaders, experts from industry, finance, academia, media. About two-thirds of the participants are from Europe. The rest are from North America. One-third from politics and government, and the rest from other fields. Historically, attendee lists have been weighed uh, weighted toward bankers, politicians, directors of large businesses, and board members for large publicly traded corporations, <laughs> including Wallenberg-owned conglomerate holding company Investor AB and other Wallenberg-owned multinationals such as Ericsson and ABB, IBM, Xerox, Royal Dutch Shell Corporation, Nokia, and Daimler. Heads of state include, including former uh, King Juan Carlos I of Spain and former Queen Beatrix of the Netherlands, have attended the meetings. A source connected to the group told the Daily Telegraph in 2013 that other individuals were, whose names are not publicly issued sometimes turn up just for the day at the group meetings. The banker and industrialist Marcus Wallenberg Jr. was a member of the steering committee and attended the meeting 22 times from 1950 to 1981, a year prior to his death. His grandson Marcus Wallenberg has attended it eight times and his other grandson Jacob 17 times. Okay. Uh, I'm almost done. I'm not going to dive into this too much deeper because you guys get the point. Uh, but let's uh, let's read this part here. The group's original goal of promoting Atlanticism, hmm, interesting term, of strengthening U.S.-European relations and preventing another world war has grown, according to Andrew Kakabads. Uh, the Bilderberg Group's theme is to bolster a consensus around free market Western capitalism and its interests around the globe. In 2001, Dennis Healy, a Bilderberg Group founder and a steering committee member for 30 years, said, To say we were striving for a one-world government is exaggerated but not wholly unfair. Unquote. Let me repeat that. In 2001, Dennis Healy, Bilderberg Group founder, steering committee member for 30 years, said, quote, To say we were striving for a one-world government is exaggerated, but not wholly unfair, unquote. Those of us in Bilderberg felt we couldn't go on forever fighting one another for nothing and killing people and rendering millions homeless. Mmm, so benevolent. Our benevolent leaders, our moral, high ground, holding, angelic, angel overlords that are going to make all of our decisions for us. So we felt that a single community throughout the world would be a good thing. <laughs> According to the webpage of the group, the meetings are conducted under the Chatham House rule, allowing the participants to use any information they gained during the meeting, but not to disclose the names of the speakers or any other participants. According to former chairman Etienne Davignon, 2011, a major attraction of Bilderberg Group meetings is that they provide an opportunity for participants to speak and debate candidly and to find out what major figures really think without the risk of off-the-cuff comments becoming fodder for controversy in the media. Hmm. 
What a nice false front. A 2008 press release from the American Friends of Bilderberg stated that Bilderberg's only activity is in its annual conference and that at the meetings no resolutions were proposed, no votes taken, and no policy statements issued. However, in November of 2009, the group hosted a dinner meeting at the Chateau of Val Duchesse in Brussels, Belgium, outside its annual conference to promote the candidacy of Herman von Rompuy for President of the European Council. And this little article goes on to say Dutch economist Ernst von der Bugel became permanently sec- permanent secretary in 1960. Upon Redinger's death, Prince Bernard continued to serve as the meeting's chairman until 76, the year of its involvement in the Lockheed affair. Whatever that is, go look up the Lockheed affair. The position of honorary American Secretary General has been held successively by Joseph E. Johnson of the Carnegie Endowment, William Bundy of Princeton University, Theodore L. Elliott Jr., former U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan, and Casimir A. Yost of none other than Georgetown. University's Institute for the Study of Diplomacy. In 2002, in a book called Them, Adventures with Extremists, author John Ronson wrote that the group was a small central office in Holland, uh, has a small central office in Holland, which each year decides what country will host the forthcoming meeting. The host country then has to book an entire hotel for the four days, plus arrange catering, transport, and security. To fund this, the host solicits donations from sympathetic corporations, such as Barclays, Fiat Automobiles, <laughs> great name, Fiat GlaxoSmithKline, Heinz, Nokia, and Xerox. So GlaxoSmithKline, people, sympathetic funders of the Bilderberg Group's annual meetings. I rest my case. If you people still think after 80 plus episodes of this podcast that there is not a small group of very wealthy powerful people colluding and conspiring and conspiring to take over control of this entire world i don't know what to tell you just take keep taking that blue pill and plug yourself back into the metaverse matrix and go to sleep Go back to bed, America. Your government is in control. People, it's time to play some punk rock. Alright people, you know what time it is. It's time to play 
some punk rock. And today I have got to play a song by a band called the Doomsday League. And they're from up north, north and east, I believe, uh, from Brantford, Ontario, Canada. And I really like Canada as of late <laughs> quite a bit. Love their expression of fighting for and defending freedom. And I think this is uh, this band's first recording. Uh, they released it uh, 2017. And the song I'm going to play for you is called Be Like You. And in the chorus, these, are, these guys are saying, I don't want to be like you. And I thought it themed up quite nicely uh, with the show today because... I don't want to be like these rich, wealthy, world-planning financiers that are trying to take over the fucking planet. <laughs> and uh, I hope that you would uh, be on my team and not like these people as well. So here we go. Making their debut on the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. Here's the Doomsday League with their song, Be Like You. Keep stumbling upon the shit that just keeps scaring the crap out of me. 
And I don't know, maybe it is. I mean, if it's really conspiracy theory, why is there volumes and volumes and volumes of historical evidence, paperwork, and many other forms of evidence? There is so much information that can be sought out and discovered. And just because you choose not to seek out and discover new information, or actually old information, information that's been covered up, buried, hidden, whatever, you can go find this stuff, people. And if your shortcut to thinking is just to label people like me as quote-unquote conspiracy theorists, what a fucking joke. There wouldn't be so many conspiracy theorists out there if there wasn't so much information that any of us, you, me, anyone, can take some time out of our oh-so-busy, egocentric lives and go figure out some of this stuff. It's not hard. Go to the website, politicsandpunkrockpodcast.com. Buy a t-shirt or donate to the show. Go look up uh, Andrew for America on Facebook, Instagram, Gab, Rumble. Send me an email at andrewforamerica1984 at gmail.com if you want to be a guest on the show or if you're in a punk band that wants some exposure, send me your stuff. I may play you and your band's music on the show. All right. That's the show. I hope you guys enjoyed it. And as promised, I'm going to let Dwight D. Eisenhower play us out today. And I want you guys to pay very close attention to what this man is about to tell you. If I've said it once, I've said it a million times. My fellow Americans, we were warned about all this shit. My fellow Americans, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Good evening, my fellow Americans. We now stand 10 years past the midpoint of a century that has witnessed four major wars among great nations. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defense establishment. Now this conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development. 
yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. In the big club. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. So that security and liberty may prosper together. And why did he say that they have to prosper together? Because any society that would trade its liberty for security deserves neither liberty nor security. And that's why we need to ensure that liberty and security prosper together. Freedom and responsibility are inseparable. And the price of freedom, my fellow Americans, is eternal vigilance. This has been episode 82 of the Politics and Punk Rock Podcast. I am Andrew for America. Are you for America, my fellow Americans? We shall see. Thank you. I love you guys. Thank you for listening. Good night. We'll see you next time. This has been episode 82 of the Politics and Podcast. Entitled, What the Fuck is a Billiard Burger?